On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I'm taking things in a different direction. I'm doing sort of an autobiography of my own story with frame building. Generally, every week on this show, the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I talk to somebody in the bike frame building world, a frame builder, or somebody who you know paints bikes or so- something related to frame building. Uh, and so this week is a little different because I'm going to kind of tell my own story. And I guess uh, I'm a little hesitant to do that because it feels kind of self-indulgent. But, uh, but you know, I, I see how it's kind of relevant. A couple people have asked me to do it at different points. And, um, you know, so a lot of my history kind of comes out here and there in the interviews. I'll, I'll mention an anecdote or something that I learned along the way that pertains to what my guest is talking about. But uh, I'll just, you know, start from the start and try and lay out the basics for people who haven't been following along the whole time. You know, because I, I got started around 2010 I took a frame building class and dinked around with it and then got more serious, got my own shop over the years. I've had like four different workspaces, made, you know, about 20 different bikes. Uh, they've all been steel, uh, some of them braced, some of them TIG welded, uh, messed around with titanium. And, and, you know, I started making more and more tools for myself. And uh, nowadays, you know, my business really is to make tools and sell tools to bicycle frame builders. Um, and then also I spent quite a bit of time making this content. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, certain details from my story might not be known to everybody or might be of interest or relevant to folks. So, uh, that is the task this week is to sort of tell my own story. When I was, uh, 19 and I was in college, I was really, uh, sort of an earth nerd, right? Sort of a, sort of a a tree, tree hugger type or (laughs) what you might say. So anyway, I was interested in bicycles mainly just because, you know, they're an alternative to, to fossil fuel uh, operated automobiles. And, um, and maybe I thought, you know, riding a bike would be fun or something, but that was really the, the main part of it. Uh, I rode bikes as a kid, but not in any serious capacity. And so, you know, I was in college and, and then, you know, getting a bike, I think I, I grabbed a department store mountain bike from home that we had in the garage that absolutely didn't fit me. It was like a dual suspension bike but I started riding that around college in the spring when I was like 19 and then pretty quickly uh, decided that I wanted to do like a 900 mile bike tour and so I, uh, I bought a proper road bike from the local bike shop it was a Jameis satellite it was a steel road bike with really skinny tires and a carbon fork and uh, it was sweet it was to me it was like a really high-end really lightweight bike and it rode awesome and it shifted you know had the brifters the the brake shifters and uh shimano sora nine speed three by nine anyway really loved that bike and then uh you know i I just got into bikes so quick at that point i've always been interested in mechanical stuff and like the things you know so like when i played guitar i was really interested in guitars or when i was interested in photography i was really interested in the cameras and the same is true of bikes you know I, i liked riding bikes and i wanted to be good at it and I also wanted to work on the bikes, and then you know I learned about fixies, where you you know you convert an old uh, an old ten speed you know Raleigh or some road bike uh, into a, a a lighter weight and simpler and more uh, I think mechanically elegant uh, sort of bike, and so I had to do that, and I did that, and I learned how to build a wheel for that bike. Um, 
And so I was doing all that stuff within like the first year of getting into bikes. And I did that 900 mile bike tour. It was like a, from, from Michigan where I live to Washington, DC. And uh, it was with a bunch of other people. It was called the Trek to Re-Energize America. And it was a bunch of like college age students who uh, were um, excited to, to organize a bike tour and to, to take our message to uh, Washington, D.C. and lobby about renewable energy. And it was really cool. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's the only real bike tour I ever did, but it was a couple weeks long. And, um, you know, just to be on the road every day with people is really cool because I think that one of the biggest things about cycling is that it's social and, you know, you make really cool friends and connections through riding your bike, right? And uh, and, and I rode through well, like Appalachia and the, the mountains there and stuff. It was really cool uh, to see that early on. So anyway, w- within a year really, uh, of getting into bikes. Um, I mean, I thought about it all the time. I was pretty bike obsessed from the beginning, but like within about a year of that, I, I had heard about some custom bike frame builders. There's a guy, uh, Ian Sutton used to do Icarus frames was all like fillet braised stuff with some like bilaminates and some carved details and really gorgeous work. Uh, he doesn't build bikes anymore as far as I know. I think he's like in the film industry or something now, but uh, really cool stuff that he made. He had a really good aesthetic and, uh, and the fillets were gorgeous. And, and so he was like the first person that I ever knew of who made custom bikes. And I thought, wow, these are freaking cool. And I think that, and, and then I, I heard about a frame building class in my state with this guy named Doug Faddock. And so uh, he's been, you know, teaching bicycle frame building for a very long time. I think he's still teaching classes, actually. He's in Niles, Michigan. Uh, he doesn't have much of like a, like a website or anything, but I think you can email him uh, and reach out about courses and stuff. So he teaches a really old school class and that's what I did. So it was between, uh, between like my second and third year of college over summer, I took a two week class in Niles, Michigan, and you learn like a really old school way to make a lugged steel bike. What I always say about that class is you could have taken that class in a power outage pretty much. Like we had lights in the shop, but there was a lot of window light and it was summer hours so it's these long days you didn't need heat uh there was a bridge port in the shop but we only used it just a tiny bit there was a lathe we didn't use that either there was an air compressor that didn't hardly need to run i mean basically the way you made the bike and the way you learned to make the bike was by using uh, an oxyacetylene torch that you light with like a flint striker and uh and then you you use like a hacksaws and hand files and like that was about it emery cloth it was really simple he has a process where he likes to design the bike frame in the jig and so he's developed this like stainless steel laser cut frame jig that lays on top of a steel or cast iron or you know whatever like surface table so you have this flat reference table and you lay out your front triangle of your bike on this jig that he made and um, you can kind of design the bike on the fixture and you can lay out your stem and your saddle sort of on top of it and it's cool because it gives you if you know what the proportions of a bike should look like you can lay stuff out and it makes it a little bit more obvious I guess if you were to like if you had your dimensions wrong and so that's part of why he likes that for my way of thinking is I would like to design the bike in BikeCAD on the computer and then trust that my model is accurate and just take those numbers and fabricate a frame based on you know these numbers that are output uh, but you know that was sort of his process uh, was to build a very traditional bike like that he was really good at doing a brazing demonstration and teaching 
brazing. So I learned silver, silver brazing and uh, some brass brazing. And there was a demo on fillet brazing. So we didn't learn that in the class, but it was covered. I recorded a video of it and I, I've taught myself later by just watching the video uh, over and over again. And so it was like a two-week class uh, that I took. And by the end, you know, you have a frame and a fork. And I made a fixie, sort of like a road geometry, you know, fixed gear bike. And I didn't, I didn't even include provisions for, you know, brakes or anything. Cause I guess that was the, uh, that was the thrust of what I wanted to do. So, so I, I did that when I was 20 years old, that was like the summer of 2010. I took that class and, uh, I was still in college and, um, I don't know, I guess, you know, when you're young, you just, your parents tell you you should go to college or mine did. And, um, so I did, and I didn't have any real sense of what I was going to do with it, but I, uh, didn't drop out of school or anything at that point to try and pursue frame building. And while I was still in school for another two years, uh, I was going to school at central Michigan university in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. And, um, I didn't know how to have like a workspace, I guess was like my big hurdle to getting into frame building. So for the next like two years while I was finishing college, uh, I didn't have a shop of my own. I didn't really have a good job or any access to, you know, real cash or anything. So I didn't buy any frame building tools. I would buy a little bit of like, you know, 4130 tubes and some silver and some flux and stuff. And uh, my, when I was at home, uh, my dad is a farmer. And so he had a farm workshop and they had a torch and uh, I did some some frame building related practice joints and stuff there, and I made myself like one or two crude tools. But the where I really got started while I was still in college was that one of the professors at my university rode uh, mountain bikes, and uh, so you know I pestered him to give me an independent study where I could use the metal sculpture facilities uh, to do bike frame building related stuff. And uh, and thankfully he let me do that, and so I you know he taught me some things, and I just I was in there. It's kind of funny because there's all these students who are enrolled in like sculpture classes and you're supposed to, you know, use the open studio hours to like work on your projects. And yet I was not enrolled in any of the actual classes and I was there more than any other student was because it was the place where I could be doing, you know, frame building related stuff. So there was bench vices and, and hacksaws and hand files and some power tools and there was a TIG welding setup and there was torches. And so I would use that space uh, in the you know, whatever hours I could during open shop and I would, um, just practice. So I did a lot of like silver brazing and bronze brazing practice. And he taught me the basics of TIG welding. And I did a fair amount of TIG welding practice on this, uh, sinker wave 180, I think it was, um, machine. And so that's what I was doing while I was still in college. So it took me like two years to finish college. It didn't make any bike frames in that time. And then it was in the year following uh, that when I graduated college, I ended up uh, picking up some more tools and I moved to Syracuse, New York because uh, I was dating somebody who was living here. And so it was like, it took me like another two years after I finished that class before I really got back into uh, building another bike frame. So like two and a half years later, I was finishing the first bike that I ever made on my own. And it's interesting when you, when you take a class, it's like kind of a whirlwind. You know, if you're not already a fabricator and you haven't been through the bike design process or the, you know, learning how to braze or how to weld or how to miter tubes or, you know, all these things, you're learning them so quickly uh, and they kind of they have to just keep pushing you along. That's just the nature of it. You know, nobody can most people can't afford to take more than a week or two off of their job or get that much time. So these frame building classes are relatively short 
And uh, when you go to build your own frame for the first time in your own shop later, you're not going to have the same tools. You're not going to have the same guidance. It's a very different experience. And it's usually for most people, at least for me, it's really slow because you have to problem solve all these different things. You have to rig up some sort of frame building fixture or buy something. You have to figure out how to, you know, miter tubes on your own. And, you know, maybe you have a different welding setup and maybe you're trying to build a different type of bike and you have different questions about that. You know, for me, I didn't just want to build the same thing over and over again. Every time I built a frame, I was trying something new. I was trying a different tube joining method or I was trying disc brakes or vertical dropouts or all these things that, you know, complicate the process further. And you, you throw those, for me, I would throw those in sort of one at a time or a couple things at a time. Every new bike had some new features. And so it was very slow in the beginning to get any speed up. The first bike that I made on my own was quite a bit like the one I made in my class. It was a lugged, you know, sort of track bike. It had a lugged fork and it was a Columbus Thron tubing, I think it's just like 4130 that's budded. I made that for a friend of mine who worked at the bike shop that I had worked at. And, um, and it was cool. He gave me a little bit of money for it, covered the, the materials and, uh, and, uh, we got it powder coated, uh, a clear color, which I don't generally recommend because it will inevitably always start to rust under that from everything that I've heard from anyone who knows anything about it. Um, but it looks really cool when it's fresh because you can see the steel. And so it's a lot of fun. I also made him a stem. I fillet brazed the stem with a, did not have a detachable faceplate, but it was a inch and an eighth, uh, threadless fork with this lugged bike. So it had a little bit more of a modern aesthetic and I didn't want to put like a, you know, black anodized forged aluminum stem on there. I wanted to have something that matched the aesthetic of the rest of the bike. So I made a a fillet braced stem, which is, I thought, a pretty cool detail. And I hadn't done that before, so I had to figure that out. And then the next bike that I made was probably a, it was one I made for another friend who was working in a bike shop. It was, that one was cool because I was so inspired by like, um, you know, guys like Chris Bishop and Eric from Winter Bikes and all these people who would do like bilaminate sleeves and fillet brazing and carved details. And so, for that, that second bike that I made my, on my own, it had a big head tube sleeve that I had carved and it had a seat tube sleeve that I carved. They were all bilaminate. And so it was, um, I don't know if you, if you all you know this, but uh, in the United States, you can buy 4130 tube and uh, it usually comes in fractional inch sizes. So you can get inch or inch and an eighth or inch and a quarter or whatever it is. And you can get 16th uh, increments also. So like inch and one sixteenth. And I think it works out that if you get, or maybe you can't always, I don't remember now. But the, the thing is, so if you had a inch and an eighth seat tube, and then you wanted to make a bilaminate sleeve, you would want to have like the, a larger diameter tube that would slide over it, and then you would carve into that larger diameter tube. And so if you get, uh, of the common wall thicknesses that are available, if you get 58 thousandths of an inch wall thickness uh, for, let's say, uh, be an eighth of, yeah so if you had an inch and an eighth seat tube and you got inch and a quarter uh diameter tube with uh, 58 thousandths wall i think it would slip right over and then it's a it, it, you have like a couple thousandths there and it's a good slip fit for silver brazing and so you can carve this this thing and without having a lathe to turn stuff to any particular diameter you can just buy off the shelf tubing and slip it on so i had done that and i made the first couple bikes like that or any details where i was doing like slip fit stuff like for the uh 
for the stem that I made, the tubing that would slide over the steerer was the next size up, 58,000 seven inch wall thickness, and it had a nice slip fit for the uh, for the clamp part of the uh, for the you know where, where where the stem clamps onto the steerer, and and also where the um, 31.8 uh, handlebar diameter, well, that's inch and a quarter, so I used the next size up, 58 thousandths of an inch wall thickness there. And uh, you can pretty easily, it's like almost pre-engineered, you know, just, just to, to be a nice slip fit. So that was how I did some of that stuff. Um, and it, anyway, every time I was building a bike, I was trying something new. I built myself a, like a cyclocross bike. I rode that a lot for years. That one was the first one that I did that was fully fillet braised, and I used thinner tubes, and they never failed on me, but I uh, through all the discussions I've had with frame builders over the years, I've come to realize that like you can buy really thin wall steel tubes uh, and it is cool, but they're just really not that robust. Like if you crash them, they can just, I don't know. I, I'm not a, I'm not a huge proponent of really thin wall tubing unless you're specifically trying to make race bikes and you have a lot of experience brazing. Um, I always kind of baby my stuff and I never broke the tubes or broke the frame. Uh, but the way that a lot of people ride, you know, if you're going to put your name on something and send it out into the world, it's nice to have, uh, you know, materials that are a little tougher, maybe. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I did that. I had this shop. My, I should backtrack a little bit. You know, finding a shop space and getting tools together at all is a big challenge for a lot of frame builders and a lot of people getting started on a budget. So, you know, I was like 22, 23 when I had my first shop. I didn't have any good job. You know, when I graduated college, I had a sociology degree, and I guess I liked the coursework. Uh, I thought it was really interesting and it was cool, but I never for a minute tried to get a job using that degree, and I wanted to, you know, do stuff related to bike frame building. So I got a job working in a bike shop, and later I worked at Jimmy John's, and I bike-delivered sub sandwiches around. And, uh, you know, I got jobs that were, like, flexible and part-time so that I had enough time to work in my own shop. And so that's how I did things for quite a long time. I didn't have that much cash, right? When you're working these like sort of low wage part-time jobs and you're paying for your rent at your apartment and your shop, you don't have a ton of cash to like throw at tools and stuff. And so I, trying to find a, a space to rent was always a trick. The first one that I had was uh, in this like industrial building um, in Syracuse that was there, there was this company called Burrow Furnace that had these cast iron pans that were like sort of boutique cast iron pans. It's really cool. Uh, this guy, John, designed, he's an industrial designer. He designed these cast iron pans that you would, they would use waste vegetable oil from restaurants as the fuel to then, uh, they were like a foundry. They would like melt down scrap cast iron, like old radiators and stuff. They would cast iron foundry these uh, beautiful frying pans. And some other stuff too. It was mainly frying pans and like some bottle openers. And I think they expanded their product offering later. But they had uh, like, I don't know, 2,000 square feet or something. And they rented me 200 of those. They subletted part of their space to me. And so for like six months or something, I built those first couple bike frames I was talking about inside of this shop, you know, in Syracuse, New York, a couple miles from where I lived. And so I'd bike there and I'd, you know, I'd work a ton of hours and I'd come home late and uh, it was awesome. And like while I was working there, they would be, you know, like firing their, uh, their, their crucible and melting down cast iron and pouring these cast iron pans. It was really cool. Uh, so I did that for a while and then they outgrew their ability to sublet the space to me. And I didn't have a shop for like six months. And that's kind of the thing, you know, like when you're looking for a workspace and your budget is like next to nothing, 
you might find a deal sometimes, but it's usually not super legit. It's usually puts you in this position where you're a little bit precarious, you know, like uh, the person renting to you isn't making enough money off of it to really want to like sign a lease or take you that seriously. And so if it works out in their favor, you might get a sweet deal for a while and then, you know, the seasons change and, and something happens or whatever and, and pretty soon you're kind of out of your ability to rent from them. Uh, I found that a couple times. So, see, so yeah, I rented from them for a while and then I had to put everything in storage in my basement and I didn't build bikes for a little while. Uh, then uh, I had another friend who had this weird sort of outbuilding in his backyard that he wasn't using. He had bought a house and there was this space in his backyard. And so we worked out a deal and for, you know, really cheap. I think the first shop I rented for like $200 a month for 200 square feet. And the second one was about the same, uh, for about the same size. And it was in order to use this shop in my friend's backyard. I mean, if I needed to use the bathroom, I had to go into his house and I always felt like a little intrusive, you know, like that was the deal was that I could do that. And he gave me a key to his house, but I just felt like I felt kind of intrusive, so I didn't want to work at all different hours, and it was less than ideal, but it did give me a low-rent uh, option to be practicing these skills, because if you can't, like, braise stuff, if you can't, you know, cut and miter tubes, you can't do hardly anything, and so I didn't want to get in over my head in a really expensive shop without even having, you know, done more of this practice work, and so so I did that. I was in the other shop for, like, a year, a year and a half. It wasn't even heated. It was, like, this little insulated 300 square foot space in this guy's backyard. And so I had an electric space heater. And when I was there, I would turn on the space heater. And after an hour or two, it would start to warm up the space enough that you could kind of work. But, you know, you had to be wearing heavy clothes and stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was cold sometimes. And I, I just continued to make bike frames for like friends and people. I uh, made a couple bikes for myself. Uh, and so, yeah, I would like, I think between the winter of 2013 and you know, 2015 or something like that. I, I had made about 10 bikes and uh, every time I was trying something new, I bought this little um, used on Craigslist. I bought a Harbor Freight mini mill, a mini milling machine. And uh, I think they sell that new for like $650. And uh, it takes an R8 collet, which is like what a real Bridgeport mill takes, but it's just this tiny machine. It doesn't really have any rigidity. doesn't have any real work envelope. It's not a very nice machine in terms of, you know, machining parts, uh, but you can do a little bit with it. If you watch the Pithy Bikes YouTube channel, he has that same machine and, you know, he's, uh, he's managed to make some decent looking stuff with it. So, uh, you know, you can do some work with it for sure, uh, but it's very limiting. It's, it's just not very rigid. When it comes to mitering tubes, it does okay. The issue I found with it is that the motor doesn't really have that much torque. And so you put the whole saw on the Paragon Machine Works whole saw arbor and you put your tube in a Paragon Machine Works tube block in the vise and you try and make a cut and it'll do it, but um, you have to kind of spin the motor a lot faster than you would want to so that it has enough momentum to not hang up and snag the teeth as you're feeding the cut. And uh, you need to feed the cut slowly so that it doesn't snag the teeth and stall out. And so what happens is like you're not taking a very big chip uh, with the individual cutting teeth and you're spinning at a high speed. So it just burns up your cutters really fast. It's really not a very good way to miter tubing, but it kind of works. Um, you can get a decent result. Uh, it's just, yeah, it burns up your cutters really fast. And if you have like a proper machine tool, like a bridge port or a horizontal mill or something that's nice and heavy and the motor has torque and you can run it at a low speed, 
uh, you get way better cutter life out of hole saws and um, you get a lot better performance. But if you don't have much space, if you don't have three-phase power or even 220-volt uh, power, it can be nice to have a small little machine like that to get started. And that's what I did uh, for quite a while. I built, you know, 10 bikes or 15 bikes without having a proper bridge port. So I did that for a couple of years and I always knew that I wanted to have more machines just because uh, I would always, you know, on Instagram and Flickr and stuff, I would follow these frame builders who were uh, making all sorts of cool uh, fixtures for themselves and they were mitering their tubes with these machines and I, I wanted to do all those things, right? So I always had my eyes on a, a milling machine or something and the shops that I rented weren't big enough. And uh, finally, I, uh, I saw this sweet deal. There was a Somebody was selling a bridge port in Syracuse and I inquired about it and it turns out they had a bunch of other machines. I made the guy sort of a lowball offer for all these different machine tools and then he just accepted my offer rather than counter offering. And, uh, and I had to find a space to put them because now I had like the opportunity to buy all this stuff. Um, so I had another friend who uh, was running this cabinet shop in an old industrial building in, in Syracuse. And so I moved into there and I, and I, I got a quote from industrial riggers to move all these machines and it was going to be like as much as I was spending on the machines. So I figured out a plan for how to move the machines myself on like rented trailers and that ended up not being that complicated. And so that was like the summer of 2015, uh, a couple of years after I'd moved to Syracuse, I, I finally had a bunch of machines and I could start really making tools and I built out that shop and I was only there like three or four months before, uh, you know, like I was saying before, when you have these deals, sometimes it can be kind of precarious because, um, yeah, I guess the, the guy who owned the building never really signed off on me moving in there. It was like a sublet. And then the person I was subletting from decided to pull the plug on the cabinet operation and I was kind of screwed there. I didn't, I had about a month to get out of there. I didn't know where I was going to move all the stuff. Um, it, it's hard to find a small space where you can do hot work and where you have a bathroom and where you have like, you know, three-phase power or something. And I needed all those things. So it's, if you look at like big warehouse space in the thousands of square feet and thousands of dollars per month, it's not a bad deal per square foot per month, but it is hard to find sort of a legitimate small space to rent. That's been my finding. It's, it's pretty hard to find that sort of thing for, you know, under like a thousand dollars a month can be really hard to find. I did find uh, another space. Again, it was with cabinet makers, although this time it was kind of uh, out of town. It was like 15 miles out of town. And so uh, I moved all my stuff there and it was, uh, it was cold storage. It was like this garage that had been added onto a commercial building so that the previous owner could like store his boat indoors or something. And so uh, I had to insulate the walls and then sheet the walls with OSB I installed a, a sub panel, like an electrical, you know, sub panel. Uh, and then, and then I had an electrician connect it to the, uh, the main panel and the rest of the building. So now I had a bunch of electricity in my shop and I wired in all the outlets and light fixtures. I installed a direct vent wall heater that ran on propane and had the propane company drop a tank and test the system. And I didn't know how to do any of that sort of like handyman kind of stuff. And I had to figure all that out. And it's actually not that complicated. You just take it a, a step at a time and, uh, and you work your way through it. And so I did that uh, in order to get this sort of uh, low rent shop space uh, up to where I could use it. And it's been good. I've been in that same space since uh, like October of 2015. So I guess it's like four years now. Let's see. 
2016, 2017, 2018, 20. Yeah, so it's like four years I've been in that shop now, uh, four full years, and I'm going into the, the fifth year now. And uh, yeah, it's been affordable. Uh, I like my landlords. They're, they're good, honest people who, who uh, uh, are not going to like ditch me or anything, uh, not going to kick me out. Uh, suddenly. And so it's allowed me to continue to learn and to grow and to practice different techniques and stuff without a huge overhead. And now I'm to the point where it's really uh, too small of a space. And I'm to the point where my business, I think, can afford to kind of uh, pay for more of a legitimate space. But it's just a logistical uh, hurdle, right? Like you need to, you need to sign a commercial lease, which means you need to commit to a longer time frame. It's a lot more money per month. The moving, uh, costs money to rig your machines around and the, uh, the build out of the space takes time or costs money or probably both, uh, depending on whether you hire other people to do it and that sort of thing and, and how furnished it is when you start. Uh, and there's just a lot of things involved. And so I haven't moved into a new space yet. That'll happen in the next year or two. Uh, but the space that I'm in now was cool. It's like 400 square feet. It was a little bit bigger. And so in that space, I had my, my bridge port and my manual lathe, and I had a couple other machines, and I had gotten a TIG welder. And so in that space, it, it's kind of funny. I, I always assumed that when I got more machines, I would be faster and more productive at making bikes, you know, because that was always the goal was to make bicycles. And so it's funny uh, the first six months that I had a shop where I was renting from the cast iron foundry that made the cast iron pans, I was more productive in that six month stretch in terms of bike frames out the door than in any other stretch in time. And I didn't have a whole lot of machines or anything. And I think the reason I made so many bikes is because I didn't make any tools for myself. I had like two or three very small tooling projects, but on that little Harbor Freight mini mill, you couldn't really get anything done or you couldn't make tools that were really worth a damn. And so I didn't waste my time making tools. Uh, I pretty much just built bikes with the tools I had. And that was actually uh, more productive for me than, you know, down the road when I got the bridge port and I got the lathe. Well, then there's like, there's an endless list of tools you can make. You're never done making tools. And so I'd make tools for a little while once I had these machines, you know, a chainstay mitering fixture and a frame fixture and this little tool and that little thing. And then I'd say, okay, okay, I got to get back to work. I got bikes to build. I'm trying to, you know, am I a frame builder or not? I got to make some bikes. And I get in the middle of it and then, I don't know, I'm just like a, I'm a very tool oriented person, I think, at heart. And I like having tools and I like having a, a process for things that feels like, feels like legitimate or something. I don't know. There's something about me. I just, I don't like hacking my way through stuff. And sometimes I'll work with other people on some project or I'll see the way that other people work. And they're really good at, like, I admire this about other people that they're good at um, getting it done, you know, like MacGyvering their way through stuff where the result is really good. The finished product is good, but the way by which they got there was not ideal but, but it served the, the, the end goal, which is, you know, to, to, to make the thing and move on. I think Adam Sklar will say, you know, like, uh, quality is, or craftsmanship is a, uh, is a result and not a process. And, um, I don't know that I always a hundred percent agree with everything about that, but I really truly do admire people who don't get so lost in the weeds. And I think that's, um, for me, once I had these machines in my shop, uh, it was hard for me to to not get lost in the weeds because I just wanted to make tools all the time and I loved it. I found this YouTube channel. There's a guy named Tom Lipton 
who lives in the Bay Area, California, and he has a YouTube channel called Ox Tools or Ox Tool Co. And, uh, and so anyway, he has just tons of machining projects where he makes all these different things in his shop. And I found that, you know, in 2015 when I bought these machines and I wanted to learn how to use them, I didn't really know how to use a bridge port or a lathe or any of that stuff. I had taken, uh, like this one course in college that was, uh, it was like machine shop practice. It was for people who were going to be an engineer and it wasn't really to teach you how to be a machinist or a welder or to run a foundry. But you would do these projects on the manual mill and the manual lathe and with a stick welder and whatever. You would do these projects like a week at a time just so that you had a cursory understanding of how these things kind of worked. So that if you were ever, I guess the idea was that if you were ever working in like a supervisory role in a company or something, you would know just enough about it that you could manage the people who were actually machinists or whatever, actually welders, you know, that you weren't such a fool about these things, but like, it really wasn't intended to teach you this stuff. So like I had done that in college and I wished I wasn't an engineer. I, I wished that they were actually, I wished it was more like a trade school. Like they were teaching you how to do these things, but I had a little bit of experience on the lathe and on the mill and that sort of thing. And I had made some, some test parts for that class. And you learn about some very basic principles of the machine shop and, and that sort of thing. But I really didn't know how to actually use these machines and make quality parts. And so I, I learned all that stuff mainly on YouTube. And so there's this channel and I recommend it to anyone, uh, Ox Tools. And um, he does a lot of videos. He used to make a lot more and he still does some. And, uh, and I've gotten to know Tom personally over the years and he's incredibly cool. And um, I got to visit his, his day job shop where he uh, builds like particle accelerators and stuff for the government. It's freaking cool. But anyway, um, if you're ever looking to learn manual machining, I can't recommend it enough because he has projects where he has the big project that he's been working on for years is where he's building uh, an intaglio etching press. Uh, for his wife. So like if you're a, a visual arts, you know, like printmaker and you're making a, a print, uh, you know, like there's like screen prints and there's woodcuts and intaglio is a different kind of uh, print making that you can do. And in order to do that, you need a really super heavy, heavy, heavy press to do that. That exerts like a ton of pressure through the rolls on the, on the, the paper, through the copper plate or whatever it is. I forget the specifics of intaglio. But anyway, he's making this press. And so uh, it's a work of art. It's amazing. And he has like 100 videos on all the different little knobs and the lift mechanism and the all the like the hand wheel that's like, you know, five feet in diameter and all these parts. It's fabricating and it's a lot of uh, machining and some welding. And um, Thomas, I think he's a genius. And uh, the way that he he illustrates his thought process as he's going through things and um, and he makes parts that are beautiful and he's just using relatively simple, you know, manual machines, you know, vertical bandsaw and the, the manual mill and the manual lathe and a TIG welder and, uh, and a couple other things, but that's pretty much it. Hand grinding his own tool bits for the lathe and really clever setups for stuff on the mill to get things done uh, in spite of, you know, what tooling you might not have and, uh, you know, how you indicate and square things up on the mill or on the lathe so that you know it's running true or that it's square or it's perpendicular or whatever. Um, all those things that, you know, nowadays I'm doing CNC machining, but I feel like the, the thought process of how you go about shop work, uh, I learned all of that from watching Tom's videos. There's like very few other sources that I've, that I would credit, 
you know, the success of what I do now with the frame building tools that I make, I would credit most of my success in being able to design things and to think about the shop work. Most of that I got from watching Tom's videos. So I can't stress enough how awesome his videos are. They're like totally free. He has a book uh, that you can buy and he has, um, it, it's awesome. But anyway, so I, I learned all this stuff about how to machine from, from watching his videos and, um, and studying that stuff, you know, different material properties and different types of threads and considerations with fasteners. And it's just, it's amazing. It's also just fun to put those videos on and sit back and watch them. But uh, yeah, so it was, inter it was interesting to me. I, I, I thought that when I got these machines, it was going to speed me up. And, and what it did is it created this sort of diversion where I found that I liked making tools more than I liked making bikes or not that I didn't like making bikes, but I didn't like making bikes without the right shop. <laughs> and I didn't have the shop I wanted. I didn't have all the tools I wanted and I did like making the tools. And it was a process where I was working toward having, you know, better and better tools all the time. So it felt like I was kind of getting somewhere. It was just really slow because there's just a never ending list of tools you can make for yourself. So I, I think uh, when I talk to other people who are getting into frame building, I would emphasize that like it's really cool to make your own tools and it can be really valuable because you learn a lot from it. It can be really rewarding and really educational to go through the process of making this stuff. But if you don't want to learn that stuff or if you don't want to make your own tools, I would not recommend doing that. Like the, the time that it takes to do it, like if you value your time at all, let's say you value your time at minimum wage Maybe you could save some money by making your own frame fixture or something, but there's just like a ridiculous amount of hours that you're going to have to put into first studying frame fixture design and then doing the design work. If you don't already know how to use CAD software, you're going to be, it's going to be incredibly slow doing napkin sketches. That's what I did when I made my first frame fixture because I didn't know how to use CAD. Um, all these things have a learning curve and they take time and it's cool because it's valuable skills to learn. And I'm really glad that I did it in hindsight because it's, it's paying dividends now that I make and sell tools. Uh, but if you just want to make bikes, there's a faster and easier way, which is to, you know, to buy these tools or to make do without like the first couple bikes I did with hardly any tools and, uh, and I was making them and it was working and there's nothing wrong with that. There's, there's a lot of builders. I mean, I'm thinking of like Richard Sachs or somebody who, you know, they make their bikes with hardly any tools and they make a great product uh, and you know, you don't need, uh, all sorts of tools for every little thing. You can miter tubes by hand with a hand file pretty dang well. You can get a nice hand file for like 20 bucks or less, you know, go on eBay and buy the old stock Nicholson or whatever. Um, you know, make some tubing blocks out of wood on a table saw and whatever. It's, it's, it's pretty simple stuff, uh, to, to cobble together just a basic kit of what you need to get started and you can get lost in the weeds for years, like I did, you know, making your own tools uh, in, you know, your, your, if, if you want your time in the shop to be making bike frames, you should spend your time in the shop making bike frames. Um, that's sort of my advice to people. Now, I love making tools and I love talking shop about making tools. And if you want to do that, then uh, more power to you. But if your end goal is to just make bikes, then, uh, you know, people have pre-engineered all this stuff. You can buy, I guess, Anvil's out of business or retired now, but, um, not in business anymore, but you know, you can buy stuff from Sputnik tool. You can always buy used tools. Like if you go on the Facebook frame builders tooling group, uh, there's a lot of times used stuff for sale. Uh, you know, I have a wider and wider product line all the time. 
I haven't broadcast it too much, but you know, I have a frame building fixture in the works that'll be released soon enough. And I'm going to continue to release more and more tools as I can get them, uh, you know, the designs finished and the manufacturing figured out. So, um, you know, if you want to build bikes, build bikes. And if you want to build tools, build tools, but realize that it's pretty easy for the tool building to become a huge roadblock and a huge distraction <laughs> that, uh, I feel like the, the reason to do that is, uh, to learn. You know, if you want to learn those skills, then it's a really, really cool way to do it. But if you just want to make bikes, just make bikes. And so anyway, uh, over the years I was doing more of that. The, uh, I didn't have a TIG welder for the first year or two on my own. And I had learned TIG welding in that independent study. And so, uh, yeah, I wanted to have a TIG welder and I wanted to have a TIG welding process. I think I was never really attracted to TIG welding as a process. I guess because it seems more like if you compare and contrast the production bike world against the handmade bike world, I feel like to me, one of the immediate differences was that handmade bikes uh, could have, you know, like bilaminate lug sleeves and stuff, and they could have these beautifully sculpted, you know, fillets like brass fillet brazing or lug work. And you didn't really see that on production bikes, at least not contemporary production bikes. It's, very, very few of them are made with a, a lugged or a brazed approach because it's expensive and it's slow. And, uh, and even when you do see that in production, it's not refined in the same sort of way. And so that spoke to me initially was that sort of brazing approach. But when I learned TIG welding, I said, oh, wow, you know, there's a lot of artistry here. And, oh, this is pretty cool because it allows you to use shaped tubing and any angles you want. And, you know, there's a lot of cool benefits. Plus, when you get good at TIG welding, it makes production faster and you know more economical and so uh that was why i wanted to get into tig welding is because i learned sort of an appreciation for it and i liked the challenge of trying to be uh you know making nice welds and so i wanted to do that and in the summer of like 2014 i crashed my bike and i broke my hip and i couldn't walk for like six weeks without crutches and it took me a while to get back on my feet and so when i was like laid up for those weeks uh thankfully my mom was between jobs and she just like took care of me, which is amazing. And I was still on my, I was 24. So I was on my parents' health insurance still. So it really could have been a lot worse. But anyway, while I was kind of laid up for a while there, I was just like watching all these YouTube videos about TIG welding from, you know, welding tips and tricks. And that was kind of building on the experience that I had had uh, when I was in that independent study and I had gotten the opportunity to learn TIG welding. So I learned a lot about the, the equipment and the different, you know, types of TIG welding torches. I learned about gas lenses. I learned about, uh, you know, water coolers and air-cooled torches and the Superflex cables that I like and the gold shade lens. And I would read stuff on, online. And, uh, and I had a little bit of cash, so I bought... Isn't that amazing? I was on my parents' insurance. So even though I had crashed my bike and I was out of work for a bit, I still had enough money to buy a cheap <laughs> TIG welder. It was amazing. Uh, I'm very thankful for that. But I bought a cheap one. I bought a, an Everlast TIG welder, an import machine. And it's been good to me. It's just DC only, so you can do you know, steel and titanium. And it had a pulser. And I bought a upgraded torch for it. And when I got that, by the time I got it, uh, I was healed enough that I could kind of go to my shop and I could sit on a stool and I could do practice welds. And so uh, I did that. And, you know, in, in a short period of time, uh, I got up to the point where I felt like I could start doing some welded bikes. And so that was around the 10th bike frame or so that I had built. I started doing that. And again, it was kind of funny. I thought that by getting the TIG welder, it would make me faster in production. And it absolutely did not in the short term anyway. 
Uh, it absolutely did not because TIG welding is a lot harder than brazing. Uh, it's easy to keyhole and blow, blow a hole in your tubes. And um, in order to do good welds, you really have to be confident and comfortable. So you're doing tons of practice joints. And then you get into actually making a bike frame and god dang, like welding the seat stays and the chain stays and some of those tighter joints is really difficult. It's a lot harder than welding like a practice T-joint on the, on the welding bench. And so it would slow me down a lot actually because, you know, you're really trying not to screw stuff up and then you do and you have to like fill holes or scrap stuff and start over. And, um, you know, once you get up to speed and comfortable TIG welding, you can, you can do welds really quite quickly and then there's not really any of the finish work associated with lugs and fillets and stuff. But it's funny. It's, I, I would advise people like if you just, uh, if you feel slow with a brazing method, but you don't really build that many bikes, that's maybe fine. You know, you don't necessarily need to get into TIG welding because there's a, it's going to slow you down for a while before you really get uh, any speed gains. And so uh, for a lot of people, custom frame building isn't just about speed and about numbers, but I just assumed that TIG welding would th speed things up and it really never has. I'm still, I'm still like amateur enough of a TIG welder that on my best day, I think I can weld a pretty good looking joint, but it's not, it doesn't come easily or quickly. Like I have to really, I have to do it, you know, what I call a dry run where you kind of, without flipping your hood down, you kind of watch your hand move through the motions that you will be doing when you strike the arc. And then when you get ready, then you flip your hood down and you actually lay a bead. Um, and then, I don't know, you have to do all this acrobatics. You know, I, you can do a better weld if you're comfortable. So you're always trying to figure out for each next stitch, how can you position the bike frame so that you'll be comfortable and you'll have a good line of sight. You spend a lot of time positioning the frame and i always thought that was kind of funny uh yeah i don't know it's like these things that you think are going to speed you up don't necessarily speed you up until you really do a lot more numbers and uh and i never did that many numbers <laughs> uh yeah so what else do i want to tell in the story I, I never really got my bikes painted very fancy i did uh powder coat on most of them i found that the local place in town I'm going to say that they're hacks. Um, I don't know. I guess, you know, if you had like a bunch of park benches or something to get powder coated or the, you know, I don't know, some like crass project and you really wanted to keep it cheap, uh, this might be a good place to go to because they, I think they were more affordable. And for me, I wanted the, you know, the detail. I wanted uh, masking where I wanted masking and I didn't want them to dent things and I didn't want them to lose things and I wanted them to call me back. And they didn't really do that. So I found another place that was like 50 miles out of town and they would do that sort of thing, you know, call, call me back. And he had sandblasting on site and he was a lot more detail oriented and he would get things right. And, uh, uh, yeah, it was a way better experience. And so I kept going to him and it wasn't until like the summer of 2016, I think I built a bike or 2017, probably 2017. And I got it painted by, uh, um, Rudy at Black Magic Paint, who was one of the earlier guests on this podcast. And so I shelled out quite a bit of money, or to me, what I felt like was quite a bit of money in order to get a multiple color wet paint job, uh, you know, with a sick fade and the logos were painted on and they do wet sanding with the clear coat and stuff so that when you're done, it's just this glossy and gorgeous uh, frame set. You know, the, the NV carbon fiber fork matched the paint on the rest of the bike, which of course you can't really do with powder coat in the same way because you can't you can't bake powder coat onto a carbon fiber fork i think the heat alone would damage it plus i think it needs to be 
uh, metal. It needs to be like aluminum or steel or something in order for the electrostatic uh, charge to hold the powder. I could be wrong about that, but I think it needs to be metal. And so anyway, yeah, I would usually get stuff powder coated. And then I, I got that one bike wet painted and it looked freaking sweet. Uh, I didn't go to trade shows for a long time. And I kind of regret that. I think um, trade shows are amazing. And I've talked about that quite a bit, uh, especially last week with the Philly Bike Expo recap. Um, you got to go. I mean, if you're if you are somebody who loves the custom bike frame building world and custom bike frames and you're following all these people and you're, you know, studying the pictures and all this stuff, like that is your community. Those are your people. They congregate at the shows. You can meet them, talk to them, become friends with them, and you can see the bikes in person. And I very foolishly never went to a single bike trade show until 2014. I went to the Philly Bike Expo. So that would have been like the the fifth year running, I think, for that show. Uh, and it was amazing. And, um, and then 2016, two years later, I came back and I showed bikes. I actually, you know, got a booth and I had three bikes on display there, or I think it was two complete bikes and a frame set that I was working on. Uh, so I didn't do that for quite a long time. I was just kind of figuring it out in my shop, which I think is a fine way to do it. You know, by the time you put stuff on display, it's nice if you have some confidence about the shop work and you have you know, a website and maybe some, some soft goods like a t-shirt or stickers, or I think I had some of my, uh, my like beanie hats with the embroidered Cobra frames patch on there, uh, and some of that sort of stuff. So it's, yeah, it's nice to, to pr present a more finished product, uh, at the NABS show, they have like the new builder table and, um, you know, again there, it's nice to have something that's kind of finished, but you only have a table, you don't have a whole booth. And so, you don't need to have the same level of um, like brand professionalism, I think, in order for it to look appropriate at the show. And it's a good way to, to kind of get your feet wet and you can have your thing on display and you'll, you'll meet the other builders. You can get some feedback from builders and you can get some feedback from people who are just going to the show. That's a cool option. I would recommend to people to do that. You know, when you, when you have something that you're kind of proud of and you want to share it and you want to uh, get some feedback and get your name, you know, whatever, uh, do a new builder table. I think there's rules for the, the NABs, uh, North American handmade bike show. There's rules like you're supposed to have built 50 bikes before you get a proper booth and you need to have liability insurance and some other things, um, before you can have an actual like 10 by 10 booth at NABs. But what else do I want to say about my story? See, here I'm interviewing myself. I have uh, less of a sense of direction. I hope this is valuable to people. Um, yeah, what else is there? I, uh, I made bikes for years. I don't really make bikes anymore. So what happened with the transition where I got into making frame building tools? That's probably uh, of some interest to people that maybe don't know that story. Uh, so I had been doing bike frame building stuff, you know, from from the class that I took in 2010 and then the summer of 2017 you know by that point I was really pretty interested in machine shop stuff I had been making all my own tools and stuff and uh, I should talk some about my frame fixture project because that was kind of interesting but anyway uh, I had gotten advice from a friend of mine uh, Jeff uh, who knows all about you know machining world and I said you know uh, if I ever wanted to get a job at a machine shop, how would I do that? How would I break into that? I've never worked for anybody. And he said, dude, just like, you know, just show up unannounced at a machine shop, you know, go to the front office and ask for a tour. And he said, like a lot of places will give you a tour of the machine shop. 
And, uh, you know, the ones that do like defense contracting and they have non-disclosure agreements or whatever, then like they won't show you stuff, but everybody else or a lot of the other places, they're like happy to show you stuff and like, they'll talk your ear off and whatever. And just like, you know, there's probably all sorts of cool stuff in your local neighborhood. And so, uh, finally I took his advice and I, I went into this machine shop and, um, they gave me a tour and by the end of it, the guy was offering me a job and I took it. And so, uh, I wasn't even necessarily looking for a job, but I decided, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, and and I, so, you know, I, I started working at this CNC machine shop because I was interested in machining and I thought it'd be cool to get my hands on the CNC process. I didn't think that it was something that I would ever really be able to buy my own machine. Uh, they seemed very expensive and very complicated. And so, uh, yeah, so I just showed up at this machine shop. They offered me a job. I started working there full-time. And that was the first time I ever had a full-time job. I was so hesitant to ever give anybody uh, 40 hours of my life every week because, uh, you know, when you work at a bike shop or when you do food delivery on a bike or these different jobs that I had, um, you could you could work part-time. And that was kind of the expectation is that you would work part-time. And so that leaves you more time to work in your shop. It's just, you really don't make much money. I, I was hesitant to give anybody 40 hours of my time because I felt like I would never get to my own shop. Uh, but I didn't think that I was able to, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't have really been able to get a job working in a CNC shop in a machine shop if I didn't give them 40 hours. That's just kind of how it is. They want you to work more than 40 hours most places. They want you to work overtime like every week if you're willing. Uh, and so anyway... I, 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 uh, <laughs> I conceded and I started working 40 hours and I worked there for nine months. And so it was really cool at first. I got to see the way that these machines worked and the workflow. And uh, they had some really high-end machines from about the year 2000. Uh, these Matsura made in Japan, really high-end uh, milling machines. And it's cool to, to use those to, to get to know a little bit about them. And then they had a CNC lathe that I ran quite a bit that was a little bit older. And uh, yeah, it was really cool to get my hands on that kind of stuff. Uh, but the bummer was that, you know, they just did, it was like a simple shop and they did simple work and they just didn't really need anyone to like advance into a position where they were doing setup or programming. And that was like everything that I was interested in was like learning how to set up these machines, how to program it, how to troubleshoot, problem solve, you know, like just loading the parts with raw material and hitting the cycle start button, the, the start, you know, the go button, that's not any fun at all. You know, that's just work. And, uh, and in life there is just work, but, uh, I wanted to also be doing the, the complex and interesting and challenging stuff. I wanted to be learning and growing. And so after the first couple of weeks there, I could see that I wasn't going to get much of that experience or not any time soon. And I almost quit, but uh, yeah, some people recommended that I stick it out a little while longer. So I did, and then I got a little bit complacent. I ended up working there like nine months, and I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I just got fed up with it. I could see that they, they just, there was like not really any opportunity for growth unless I was going to stick around for 20 years. Then like maybe eventually I would get some advancement, but it was, it was slow. Like I was willing to work off of the clock, after hours, you know, read the machine manuals at home on my own time or whatever, and... They just, you know, and, and I would ask my manager questions about the machine like, oh, I broke a tool doing this because I loaded the part wrong and so we need to touch off another tool. Sorry about that. And well, I'd maybe be more apologetic than that. But anyway, uh, like how do we, you know, how do we touch off the tool again? And then he would just kind of walk past me and he'd press some buttons on the control and it would be done and then he would walk away and he wouldn't say anything to me. I think he was afraid that if I learned how to do it, then he would have less job security or something. And, um, and it was 
it was stupid how hard it was for me to like to get that sort of challenge to learn things they just wanted to keep me as like a button pusher and uh so anyway yeah eventually i quit i gave them an ultimatum i said you know like if you guys don't give me any opportunities to 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 grow and to develop i'm gonna have to leave you know it's not that i'm unmotivated it's that i'm uh, uh you know i'm too motivated for this job and uh and you know the, yeah they didn't offer me anything different so i put in my two weeks notice and uh it was interesting i felt like uh the owner of the company wanted me to just be happy to be a button pusher and i felt like when i gave him that ultimatum and i put in my two weeks notice and i was polite about it i felt like i earned his respect it was really weird it was like what does that suggest about all the other employees who've been there for like 10 years or more who are just willing to to show up every day and do the work it was interesting to me that like i like passed the test or something he seemed like like when he came out and talked to me on the shop floor after he saw my two-week resignation notice, he shook my hand and he seemed really proud of me or something. It was really weird. It was like I passed the test and I like earned his admiration. It was, it was the weirdest thing. Uh, and then I, I went and I took a, right after that, I'd enrolled in like a couple days of classes uh, in Ohio at this. So like I looked at uh, trade school, you know, like going to a community college and those are all really long programs. They take like a year or two. And uh, even though I had a lot of manual machining experience and I had some CNC background, they want to start you at the very beginning and they just want you to go through the normal curriculum. They don't want to like give you just the advanced classes, the CNC programming and stuff. And they kind of, a lot of places will teach those courses like it's 1980 and like you start by like learning G code manually. Like, you know, this is how you program this and this is how this works. And Nowadays, I think it's a totally different learning process. You shouldn't learn that way if you don't have to. That's my two cents. And uh, there's these guys who have a YouTube channel, NYC CNC, and they have a facility called Saunders Machine Works that's in Ohio, middle of nowhere, Ohio. And uh, they offer a class that I think was geared toward exactly what I wanted. It was a couple days, it was two days for a Fusion 360 CAD and CAM software course that I took. And then it was three days hands-on using this little Tormach mini milling machine. And so I did that. Uh, and I, I learned how to get up to speed doing uh, some CNC machining stuff in a matter of days. I learned the basics of, I, I didn't really know how to use CAD software. And very quickly, I got up to speed with that stuff. And, uh, and then I left the course. And uh, that whole time I was working in the machine shop, I was like living like a crust punk, like I always had, like a dirt bag, you know, in an apartment that I shared with, with, uh, with roommates and not paying much for rent at my shop. And I was working full time and getting paid a lot more. So I had been like saving a lot of money and I had enough cash that I could buy an old industrial machine for not a lot of money. And so I had the CNC fever. I really wanted to get my own machine and I did. And, um, it, what I want to say about that class is that they are more like computer nerds than they are like old school machinists. And so a lot of old school machinists approach CNC machining as like, you know, step by step, like type in the lines of code as if they're individual prompts, like we're going to turn the spindle onto this speed and bring the cutter down to this elevation and then move it across the table in this direction and then over here and then back. And they're like thinking of it like in a very step by step sort of way. And you're like typing in the code. And if you transpose a decimal, you're going to crash the machine into itself and break something. It's going to be expensive. But the way that you learn when you go to this other class that I took uh, is that like they're more like computer nerds and they're like happy to teach you the easy way. 
And software has made it very easy to learn this stuff. So like, there's still a place for manual programming, but you really don't need to start there. I think it would be foolish to think you needed to start there. You're just making it hard on yourself. Like, you can learn CNC machining really pretty easily nowadays. And so um, you, you learn the easy way how to set it up. And then, uh, yeah, I bought this machine from 1996. I paid cash. It was well under $10,000 to get the machine in my shop and to start cutting parts. And I bought it just to learn with because I was interested. So I had, I guess when I started that CNC machine shop job, um, for years I had been like making bike frames and I love frame building, but I was just getting, I guess, a little bit tired of like, it's the, it's a common theme. You've heard it in this podcast. Like, when you're a frame builder, um, you have to run your business, you have to do your books, you have to do your marketing, you have to manage a website, you have to manage customers and timelines, you have to do all the fabrication. There's like a million hats to wear. And it's like that with any small business. It's like that with my business now too. Uh, it can be exhausting. And I guess like after I had done that for a while with like no business background, no experience in any of this stuff... I just kind of got tired of it. And so like I started working this full-time job and it was like, it was kind of nice to just like show up for work. I was in at seven and I was off at three 30 every day. And, um, it was, I don't know, it was kind of nice to just have a job and to like clock out at the end of the day. And so I'd go to my shop and my shop became like a hobby zone and I didn't do anything in my shop that I didn't feel like doing. I made some tube benders with my manual mill and I, uh, and I built, uh, some commuter bikes and, um, you know, they were just simple, no frills bikes. I put cheap parts on them and it was like a total departure from what I had been doing for the past couple of years where, whereas I had been trying to build a brand and I had been trying to make product that spoke highly of my brand and of my skills. And I just kind of needed a break from it. So I was like, I was kind of doing this other stuff. My shop was a hobby zone. And I remember in January of that year, I went to my shop, like two days. I was there for like a total of like six or eight hours the whole month, you know, <laughs> like still paid rent, you know, but it was just kind of nice to be taking a little bit of a break from it. And so, yeah, when I quit that job and I took the class and I bought the machine, I wasn't even thinking that much about frame building. I just, I wanted to get the machine so that I could challenge myself, like to learn CNC process to learn to design parts, to learn to make stuff. And I figured it was going to be a long road. But I bought the machine. I had a little bit of cash left after I bought the machine. So I figured I had like a month or two tops to, to play around every day in my shop, you know, eating beans and rice, living cheap, milking it. And then when I was like close to running out of money, I was going to get another day job and go back to work. But I would have all this experience, you know, programming and setting up and running a machine and I thought I could market myself for more of the kind of job that I wanted, which would be like a CNC machinist programmer and setup person rather than just like a button pusher. So if you go to a machine shop, you have like machine operators or people who just uh, generally just like, you know, run the machine. It's a low skill job. It's a lower pay job. It's more boring, more repetitive, easier to get maybe. Uh, but, you know, it's a machine operator. And then you have like a machine setup or machinist programmer. Those are like, you know, the higher skill jobs they tend to pay better. They're more complicated. I think they're more interesting, more desirable job for someone who likes thinking about this kind of stuff. Uh, and, you know, so I figured I could maybe get myself into a better job by buying this machine. It was sort of a career move for me because I thought that I would go from, you know, uh, from making my first, you know, my machine operator job. I had leveraged, like, based on my background, I said, I want to make at least $17.50 an hour. And they gave me that. 
which, I mean, depending on who you ask, is a good or a terrible wage. Uh, but for me, I felt okay about that. And, um, and I figured if I was, you know, in more of a programming uh, role, I could make considerably more than that, maybe another 50% or more. And so I, that was the reason that I bought the machine, not to start Cobra Frame Building Tooling, right? But I also, I really wanted to like make cool and interesting stuff. And so if you have a job working for somebody else, even if you get to that point where they let you program stuff, uh, you're probably not going to be able to do your own for fun projects. Uh, or maybe with rare exception, they'll let you get on the machines. But a lot of places, they got their own work and they don't want you to like break tools or break the machine, right? So uh, I bought it so that I could, I could dink around and make cool stuff. And pretty quickly... I was making good stuff. It was actually, it turned out to be pretty easy. With all the years that I'd been doing manual machining and with how user-friendly the software is, I found it to be pretty quick to get up to speed making parts. And then uh, I had some ideas for some small tools and stuff. And I had made, you know, on my manual machine, I had made some small frame building tools. I made a pair of like V-blocks that would hold uh, tapered chain stays and stuff in a milling vise. I had made those and sold those in the past. And so I was like, well, you know, I have an idea for a revised version of this. And so I made that and I made a brazing clamp that was just really super simple. And I figured I could sell a three pack for a pretty good price and it would just be a nice versatile economy option. And I started selling stuff. And, uh, and so, yeah, the story goes that I started selling stuff and I haven't had to go back to work for anyone else yet. Like it was, I, I'm, I feel like really lucky and kind of surprised by uh, you know, by being a sort of a dirtbag and keeping my overhead low, uh, I was able to, with, you know, relatively little sales in the beginning, and even still, I was able to kind of keep the business moving forward legitimately without having to have a day job. And so it's kind of interesting that it worked out like that. Um, and uh, I think after the first couple months of making and selling these little frame building tools, you know, I was from the beginning, I started working on this, the, um, the tube bender that I make and sell. And I put a lot of time into developing that. And that's all in my, you know, my Instagram. If you scroll back, there's a ton of posts about all the development of that tool. And, and so anyway, I, I think by the, you know, a little over a year ago, I, I started to see this as like sort of my new career path that like I felt like it was a viable thing that had legs and I wanted to go all in on it not assume that I had to go back to work for anyone else if I ran out of cash I would go back to work for someone else temporarily although I still haven't had to do that uh, but that was the idea was that I wanted to make a machine shop where I made and sold you know directly uh, custom frame building tools to to this niche that I so love and that I feel like I understand pretty well I love frame building. I love custom frames. I love talking about it. Uh, I love doing it. Uh, I love making bikes. And I think tooling is something that suits me particularly well. And I think there's a lot of frame builders who are pretty good at making tools also. But um, the thing that I think it, it suits me really well because I love getting lost in the weeds of the details with these little tools. And when you're only making one of something, it's a total waste of time. Like you're never going to get that time back. But for me, uh, it works out really well because like with the, uh, with the tube bender that I made, there's some details where I put a ton of thought into those, but now I've sold a bunch of those benders and I just keep repeat producing it. And so it's sort of like a division formula, you know, like you divide the, the, uh, the amount of time that you put into developing it by the number of units you sell. And then, you know, good design becomes really important and really valuable. Whereas if you're just making like, you know, one of something, it's harder to justify that. 
additionally, um, I think that, uh, you know, I've had some really clever solutions for some things like uh, on my tube bender, I'm really proud of the sort of quick release clamp for the way that you can load and unload the tubes really quickly. And, uh, you know, the way that my miter buddy tool holds the, the tapered tubes, but uh, it holds them so that the center line of the tube is parallel to the fixed jaw on your vise on your milling machine is really useful. And some of these things that I've thought of, I feel like I'm really proud of that. Uh, some of these details are really good. I think I have a knack for that. And, um, and another thing is that when you make a product and you do it as your own business and then you have to sell it, it really helps if you understand your customer and you can talk to your customer and you can understand the value that you provide to them. And so I think for me with frame building, it was always hard for me to relate to uh, my customer because I have never really known anybody like in my peer circle who bought a custom bike. Like it's just, I just, my friends are all, have been all like, you know, sort of like art students and dirt bags and people who like didn't, I mean, and I say that lovingly and I include myself in the term dirt bag. Um, but like, you know, just like I, I'm not, uh, the, the sort of money that it takes to casually spend on a, a custom bike is not something that I'm, that I can relate to. And that lifestyle of buying like a high end good. I mean, buying a custom bike is a little bit like buying, a nice watch or, uh, like, you know, buying yourself like a luxury car or something, you know, it's like nobody needs a custom bike and it's harder for me to relate to the customer, I guess, when you're in the custom bike building, uh, role and not always, you know, there's a lot of people who will, uh, spend a dispropor disproportionate amount of their income on a custom bike. But when it comes to custom bike frame builders, I feel like I really relate to those people and I know how to, I know how to serve their needs with tools that are actually really helpful and I know how to like say, oh yeah, I know that problem that you're experiencing with mitering. Isn't that frustrating? Like I've been working on a tool that's going to fix that or like, oh yeah, like, you know, you need a tube bender that can do this and this and that doesn't do that. And, um, I like talking shop with frame builders and I feel like I understand their needs. And so it feels like just a na more natural and a better fit for me to, uh, to move in that direction. And so that is, uh, where I've been going with the, the the work that I do. I think it's a good fit for me. I like uh, the CNC process is really cool uh, to get to know. Um, the technology of it is really interesting. You know, the I don't know, there's a lot of details to it that I don't expect the listeners of this podcast to be interested in or uh, care about, but it is really fascinating. And you can, just like with frame building, you know, you can challenge yourself to always be learning. And the same is true, I think, with CNC machining. And, uh, and also, you know, like I've gotten more interested in running a business, the, the multiple hats that you wear as a business owner with marketing and, you know, the, the actual business stuff and like accounting and bookkeeping and, you know, legal stuff and whatever. Uh, that's more interesting to me now than it ever has been. So I find myself not really making bikes anymore, but, you know, making tools and, I get to relate to all the frame builders. And so if you follow my YouTube channel, you see the last year I built a really cool hardtail mountain bike and I'm really stoked on that. It's, I think it's the coolest bike I've ever made. And, um, you know, I did that while running this other business, not to create a bike frame, but to create YouTube content and to learn 
to challenge myself to learn and to better understand the process and the community and the problems that frame builders face. You know, I had never built a mountain bike before. And so you learn every time you try and build a new kind of bike about the unique problems that you face. So if, as long as you're building like <clears throat> old school diamond frame road bikes, you're never going to need a really long uh, reach on any frame. And, uh, you know, that's, that's one way of building bikes. If you build a modern hardtail mountain bike, you might have a really super duper long front end, really long down tube. And, and there's actually a lot of frame fixtures that can't support the, the really long front end forward geometry mountain bikes that people are building these days. Well, I'm glad I learned that before I started designing a frame fixture uh, for sale to the public, which, you know, is what I'm working on now is designing a frame fixture for sale to the public. Well, I want it to not have that kind of shortcoming to it. Um, you know, I, I see it like every day now when I'm scrolling Instagram, I see pictures of frames in the jig. Whenever anybody's building a modern mountain bike, it looks like they're just about maxed out on the extents uh, of travel for where they can put their head tube. And so, um, you know, I don't want people to have to hack their way through it or make workarounds. I want it to support the, uh, the, the sort of normal range of adjustments for all these different kinds of bikes that my customers want to build. And it's all those things, but by, uh, by working in a little bit of frame building here and there, I can be learning uh, about how to better do my own job. Uh, but I'm not really in a capacity where I'm building bikes for the public at this point, um, just because this, this project that I'm on now is pretty demanding, you know, trying to develop new tools all the time and and I think making this content, the podcast and the YouTube channel, I think that's valuable and I want to make that stuff for people. It's the kind of resource that I wished existed when I was getting started and it's something that I can do. I have relationships with a lot of frame builders now, so it's an easy way for me to uh, get someone you know, to, to open up and talk about stuff for a little while when I ask them to be on the show. And it's, uh, <clears throat> I mean, it's a good way for me to market myself too. Uh, you know, by, by getting the attention of all my prospective customers who might be interested in listening to a podcast like this. Well, now, you know, they're maybe more aware of me. Uh, but it's something that I would have wanted to do anyway. I guess just because it also serves my business interests, it makes it a lot easier for me to prioritize the hours and hours it takes every week to produce a show like this. If there was no way that I could ever get a return on that time, and I was also busy running my business, it would be hard to prioritize the hours every week that it takes. But it sort of serves my business interest to, to um, you know, <clears throat> make something for this community of folks. And so that's great. It gives me a reason to do this show that I love doing every week. So I don't know. Yeah, I, did, I maybe should have made an outline for this podcast to cover uh, the basics. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I was kind of a late bloomer to getting seriously into bikes and then, uh, you know, got into it really seriously, uh, took a frame building class, you know, I practiced for a while just going over the, the nuts and bolts of brazing and welding and doing practice joints. And, and when I had the independent sculpture, uh, independent study with the metal sculpture guy, I didn't have like a frame fixture or a way to make a complete bike. But one thing that I did is I always thought it was cool people who'd make like a lightsaber, you know, like a Star Wars lightsaber, like the, I guess like, you know, people who make props for movies, like, like Adam Savage or something. Um, that's really cool. And so I wanted, I always thought making a lightsaber was a really cool machining project and I didn't have machine tools, but I had, uh, some of these skills I had learned about bike frame building. So I, I took some slip fit tubing and I made something that looked like, a like a lightsaber sort of, it was pretty, 
pretty ugly actually. But anyway, I made that and I was really proud of it. I thought it was cool. I made that uh, while I had this independent study in a, a metal, metal sculpture studio. But I did a lot of projects like that for the first year or so where I was <clears throat> just practicing techniques. And then I had a small shop and you know, made the most bike frames when I had the fewest machine tools was kind of counterintuitive uh, because as I got more machines, I just got more distracted with the people call it shiny object syndrome or something. You know, it's like rather than just doing the work, there's some interesting and shiny and fun new problem to solve. And so you'll solve that problem rather than doing the work that maybe is more important. <laughs> um, because it just becomes work after a while. When it's new, it's kind of exciting and interesting, but pretty quickly it just becomes work or something. So I guess I always wanted to make tools for myself because that was like a fun and new and interesting thing. And uh, I think it requires some discipline to know which things are important when, because tools obviously are really important. Uh, if you have a, a shop full of good tools, man, that takes a lot of uh, time and pressure out of the process and uh, you can make a better product. But you know, if, if you're just trying to make bike frames and your only options are to make bike frames with no tools or to stop and make tools, you know, sometimes you wanna, you wanna build a tool and then make a bike and build a tool and make a bike rather than uh, you know, build 1500 tools in a row without making a single bike. So yeah, I don't know. Hope that's a useful background of my, my history and my story. If you have specific questions, you can uh, reach out to me and um, ask, ask away. And I'm, I tend to be pretty open about you know, my, my, my story and my struggles and my things I've learned and stuff. I want to be a resource to the frame building community to the extent that I can and to the extent that I have any authority to share my opinion about stuff. And the same thing goes for the guests on this show every week. If you have recommendations, I always want to hear those for people you'd like to hear from and, uh, you know, topics and questions you want to hear covered on this show. Uh, I guess I'm going to wrap it up here. Plenty enough of me yapping. This doesn't have the usual back and forth dynamic of an interview, interviewer, interviewee format, right? I'm just, just yammering on about myself. So um, anyway, uh, we'll see you next week.